Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Our next guest for season two is Dr. Georgina Ridioff, a UK-born HPB surgeon currently completing further training and research in Australia. Dr. Ridioff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And I suppose I should qualify that introduction by just making it clear that I'm still a set trainee, um, yet to achieve my fracs. But thank you very much for having me. No, it's, it's great to have you. And we love having a, a spectrum of guests on the show. So it's great to hear lots of different perspectives from the trainees up to the consultants. So we're really looking forward to hearing your story today. For our listeners who might not know you, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Yes, yeah, so first thing, my name's George. Um, I'm a set trainee at the Austin Hospital in Heidelberg, Melbourne, um, with a specific interest in HPV and liver transplantation. And I'm currently um, finishing my thesis in um, tumour occurrence in the regenerating liver. Exciting stuff. Absolutely. I must also mention, uh, we will get onto your research a little bit later, but we're at the Doherty Institute today. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks for having the Time Out podcast here at these lovely facilities. Yeah, no worries. So, in order to start getting to know you a little bit better, George, firstly, can you just tell us a little bit about your day so far? What does a typical day look like for you at the moment? Um, So, a typical day at the moment is... Uh, or feels quite atypical because I recently had my first um, child and so um, we don't set an alarm anymore in the house. He is the alarm. So we got up and I fed Max and um, then I um, proceeded to get ready for the day and tried to write some of my thesis. That's sort of my life right now. So what, where is Max's alarm clock set? What's a, what's a normal morning and wake-up time for you? Uh, we're very lucky. He's, he's sleeping quite well at the moment, and on average he seems to be waking up anywhere between 6 and half 6 a.m. So for a surgeon, that's, you know, extremely acceptable. That's a sleep-in for a surgeon, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So amongst doing research and further training, as well as having a, a young child at home, Do you have any time to read books or listen to podcasts at all? Um, I love audiobooks. Um, Anyone that knows me well knows that I am a Harry Potter uh, fan, a Harry Potter diehard fan, really. Um, So I've listened to the Stephen Fry audiobooks many, many times, as well as reading um, the paperbacks. And I highly recommend anything that Stephen Fry narrates. His voice is just wonderful. And I frequently fall asleep at night listening (laughs) to the sound of his voice. Um, I love podcasts. Um, My mum used to have the radio on all the time growing up. And I've sort of inherited that love of the radio now. And particularly enjoy um, a BBC4 podcast called The Life Scientific um, it's hosted by a British physicist called 
Jim Al-Khalili. And he's also a fantastic um, narrator, presenter, very enthusiastic. Um, and similar to yourselves, probably asks um, emerging scientists and established scientists about how they reach their goals in life. So I would recommend um, that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you, for someone who likes podcasts, you're in the right place. Um, and yeah, that, that sounds similar to our goals today on the podcast to, to find out a bit about, more, about your life and your goals and, and how you got where you are today. In terms of your non-medical interests, one question we always ask our guests is if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and why? Oh, I think, um, I think that's a tough question. I've never really um, thought seriously about much else other than medicine. I think um, I love spy novels and I love um, the idea of being a spy. I'd be a terrible spy because I'm, I don't have a poker face at all. Um, but yeah, maybe to work in the foreign office, maybe that would be quite cool to try out for a while. Yeah, I, I feel like medicine at times is almost like being an investigator or a detective. You've, you've got to find clues and pick things up. So maybe you wouldn't be as bad as you think. Yeah, precisely. No, I often... Um, used to say that to the med students in their tutes, you know, you've got to think of yourself as a Sherlock Holmes but for the human body, yeah. Well, in the interest of getting to know you a bit better today, George, I'd like to start at the start. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up in the UK. So, looking back on my childhood, I, I was probably very blessed. Um, we had a very comfortable upbringing. We lived in a nice village um, sort of halfway between Brighton and London as the crow flies. Um, so in the green bit in between the cities. Um, I went to a lovely primary school and um, a relatively good comprehensive where there was um, a real mixture of people from all sorts of backgrounds. I think that gave me an excellent basis and foundation on which to um, sort of become a doctor and be able to relate to people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, I made some lifelong friends at secondary school. I'm still very, very close to those girlfriends today. Um, it was a very happy childhood. I was very lucky. I had a very nurturing parents. Um, they always supported me and encouraged me, um, regardless of my gender, really. That was, that was not an issue, yeah. Gender issues uh, as a whole and, and particularly in medicine is definitely a topic that I, I want to get to a little bit later. Tell us a, a little bit more about your influences at the time, uh, particularly your parents and uh, any siblings that you had. Yeah, so mum and dad um, obviously influenced me greatly. Um, they always um, emphasised, you know, the importance of hard work and um, I always remember dad saying to me you know there's no such thing as can't if I had ever complained that I couldn't do something he would very quickly retort that um, and I think yeah I learned very quickly to just sort of get my head down work hard and let let my work speak for itself really um, I was never discouraged from doing anything um, based on my gender which I think is great and I think mum and dad actually um were excellent role models um, in that mum went back to work when I was 11. My brother would have been about eight at the time. 
And although it was hard at the time for us all to adjust to mum going back to work, um, dad in particular had to really um, take on a new role. You know, his hours changed. He had to go to work earlier so that he could finish earlier. And he was the parent that was at home after mum went back to work. He was the one that greeted us from school and he made um, our dinner for us in the evenings. Um, And looking back, I think that really... Um, set an amazing example as to how um, you know men can support women um, in getting back to work and, and and how a relationship really functions as a team um, basically yeah that is a great example he sounds like a stay-at-home dad a little bit before his time perhaps yeah well he wasn't a stay-at-home dad he was still working full-time right. um, he just had to adapt his hours um, I guess to accommodate for mum's new job and um, yeah we all you know I distinctly remember (sighs) not enjoying it you know it was a I was sad when mum went back to work and I feel really bad about that now because she was perfectly entitled to go to work but obviously I had been used to her being at home for 11 years Um, but yeah I think I think her and together my dad set a great example um and to my brother as well because interestingly him and his wife now have a situation where they both work part-time in order to support one another's careers and be there for their children yeah there you go so tell us a little bit about George the child what were you interested in uh I I pretty much loved everything uh I loved school um I loved science um I particularly had a strong affinity for chemistry and biology. Um, I wanted really to be really good as well at physics, but physics didn't come as naturally to me. Um, I loved sport. I was really into my running and my swimming for a while. Um, I was quite a good middle distance runner. Um, I used to run 800 metres and go to national competitions quite frequently and I used to train a lot. Um, I think training a lot for running not only kept me out of a lot of trouble when I was growing up, it also taught me a lot of discipline and commitment. And I could see that, you know, if I trained regularly and hard, then I would I would reap the rewards um, on the track. Um, and I think, you know, that's a lifelong lesson that's, that's stayed with me as well. It's really interesting to hear a lot of our guests, I think lots of medical people, but maybe especially surgeons, often have other persp- pursuits that they did before surgery or maybe even concurrently that uh, teach them those values of discipline and hard work. I think sport is a good example as well. Do you think that the two things maybe uh, go together in a way that the personality that is attracted to working hard in, in sport, for example, is also attracted to a career in surgery? Definitely. I think there's a lot of a lot of parallels, but maybe not all good parallels. I mean, certainly I was addicted to running for a time, probably. Um, anyone that runs a lot knows how addictive it can be. And with practice, um, sort of almost comes perfection in a way. Um, and th- I think the same is true of surgery. You sort of, you get a bit addicted and you need to practice and practice and practice. Um, so for medicine, where did that come in as an interest for you? Were, were you always interested in that throughout your schooling years? No, not really. Um, I went to a comprehensive school, so I probably wasn't sort of pushed in any sort of particular direction. When I was sitting my A-levels, which I 
it's a bit like your VCE, I think. Um, one of the teachers probably mentioned, you know, medicine, and I ended up going on a course um, that was aimed at A-level students um, thinking about doing medicine. And I came home from that course um, buzzing and basically said to mum and dad, you know, yeah, I'm going to apply for medicine and this is what I want to do. And dad was very supportive in particular. Um, I think we both um, wanted me to go to university but I I knew as well that if I was going to go to university I wanted to do a degree that um, sort of had a clear pathway to a job Um, so that was something that attracted me to medicine as well yeah did you have other people in your family or in your immediate circle uh, in medicine already or going for it no I'm the first doctor in the family Um, dad's a mechanic so good with his hands and mum is a primary school teacher was a primary school teacher so um you know good at communication and teaching education um but yeah I'm the first doctor in the family yeah so year 12 or equivalent um did you go straight into medical school what was the process of applying and getting in like yeah so I applied um in the UK you at that time I'm not sure what it's like now we could apply to four medical schools and you could apply to two other universities or two backup courses in case you didn't get into medicine. Um, So I got one offer from the University of Leicester and I I took that offer up. So tell us about that experience then. Did you have to move cities and change a lot of aspects of your life to to then start med school? Yeah, so in, in the UK it is a bit different to Australia. Most of us tend to move away to go to university. So we're all boarding in our first year. And it's an amazing experience because, you know, you're away from home, um, you have some pocket money to spend on whatever you want, you can go out and basically do as you please. Um, So, yeah, I loved university. Um, I loved uh, learning about medicine. I particularly enjoyed the clinical years. Definitely the last two and a half years of the course were sort of my favourite, if you like, going around the hospitals dabbling in things yeah did you ever find uh that you uh, perhaps thought the age that you had entered into medical school was um, pretty young and you you were kind of pretty uh, immature in a way at all Um, I only ask because it's a conversation we've had with some of our other guests about undergrad versus postgrad medicine it's an interesting discussion that you know Australia is still somewhat of a split model did you have any thoughts on that? Not strong opinions, to be honest. I think for me personally, I felt okay finishing uni at, I think, 23. But that said, you know, the things that you are expected to deal with at that age on the wards are difficult. And there are definitely a few occasions where I can um, recall dealing with very difficult scenarios um, in a poorly funded health system Uh, on my own with very little senior support and one particular occasion left me feeling quite angry. I remember feeling quite let down by the system. Um, We had lost a patient on the table and um, we were very short-staffed. The circumstances were very tragic and sad and I remember, for I was 25 at the time, I remember thinking the government's asking a lot of a 25-year-old here um, and not necessarily agreeing with 
the sort of pressure that we were being placed under as young adults. Um, but that said, you know, I still managed to learn a lot from that situation. Um, but that situation probably shouldn't have been allowed um, to have happened. Yeah. Do you think that's uh, something that can be addressed by perhaps people being a little bit older in medical school? Or is it more of a systematic change, increased support and you know, less hours, things like that, from, a, from the way the hospitals are run? I think it's more a system failure, yeah. I think as young adults, um, we shouldn't be underestimated. I, I think um, the scenarios that I'm sort of thinking of in my mind are more down to system failures, the fact that there, were no, that there was a lack of senior support, a lack of um, senior availability, um, short-staffed numbers on the ground, um, those sorts of issues were more of any were more of a problem yeah so going back a little bit to your medical school years what were you interested in as a med student yes yeah, so i knew quite early on that i wanted to do surgery i loved anatomy dissection and i was very lucky um, because leicester was one of the few universities that was still offering complete human cadaveric dissection um, and it sounds like a bizarre thing to enjoy, but I really enjoyed it and gained an awful lot from it. I loved dissecting out the planes and taking you know, my time to do that and learn about the anatomy and the relationships um, of various structures. Um, so that enthusiasm for anatomy really got me thinking about surgery. And then I sought out some um, specific electives in medical school. So I, I was a bit undecided because I also enjoyed um, physiology and aspects of medicine. Um, and someone I think early on told me, well, obstetrics or transplant are good for the sort of surgery slash medicine minded sort of people. And I ended up doing um, a three or four week elective with the renal transplant team at Leicester, um, which was quite a big unit in the UK and run um, by a prolific professor at the time um, and I had a great time and I could see um, the benefits of the surgery you know you take someone who's on dialysis three days a week they feel pretty naff th the day after dialysis so that's six days a week that they lose they have one good day a week you transplant them and you transform their life and I loved the idea that these patients came to your clinic forever so you not only had the satisfaction and gratification from the surgery but you got you sort of became woven into these people's lives over time and I loved um, watching that relationship that um, some of the professors and registrars developed with those patients over time because that's really special um, and something that keeps me going is, is the relationship that I develop with my patients, yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I think something, at least from our perspective as medical students, that you do hear about one of the negatives of surgery is perhaps... Um, less of a relationship with with your patients especially if it's kind of one episode of care and then there's not really much on either side of that so um, I can see how the the attraction of transplant surgery and how you get to build that enduring relationship 
yeah, they keep coming back to clinic for many years. Um, you know, you have to monitor their immunosuppression. There are long-term side effects of the immunosuppression that you need to monitor them for. And, um, yeah, it's just lovely to keep seeing them. So you mentioned the this elective that was obviously quite formative for you. For our listeners who might be pre-meds or medical students thinking about seeking out those opportunities, do you have any advice in terms of picking perhaps a specialty or picking a type of elective or any other opportunity that uh, med students should seek out? Um, I think um, one piece of advice I would, I would give is don't worry too much about necessarily getting it right. Um, you know, so I think when you're a medical student, it's easy to obsess over, well, I'm not sure what I want to do and I need to get it right, pick the right specialty. Um, so for instance, one of my very formative experiences with surgery was actually doing some work experience um, in East Grinstead, which was the town where I went to secondary school. And it has a long history of plastic surgery because of um, a chap called Archibald McIndoe, who was um, a pioneering plastic surgeon who operated on World War II pilots, and he established facial reconstruction with pedicles. Anyway, um, going to that hospital and, and seeing the history of plastic surgery there was sort of what got me into surgery, if you like, before anything else. But I didn't end up becoming a plastic surgeon or a plastic trainee. Um, I ended up finding my passion in, in the liver, really, later on down the track. So I, if, if something interests you at the time, here, now... Um, go for it. Don't worry too much about whether it's what you end up doing down the track. And I think the other piece of advice that I would give, you know, the, the lesson that I've sort of learnt is um, if an opportunity comes along um, and and you think it's a good opportunity, irregardless of the specialty that that opportunity might lie in, um, you, you should probably take it. Um, so, you know, I ended up in Australia um, very serendipitously, really. Um, I ended up doing a transplant elective in Pittsburgh, and I made contact in Pittsburgh, America, with a surgeon um, who worked at the Austin. Now, at the time when I decided to go to Pittsburgh, I had no idea that I would end up being a surgical trainee in Melbourne. I had no idea that I would make a contact there but if I hadn't gone to Pittsburgh that wouldn't have happened so opportunities arise and you don't know how they're going to shape your life um, and that's sort of scary uh, but interesting at the same time so I think it's really important to to try to take those leaps of faith sometimes yeah yeah that's really good advice so you graduated medical school in 2010 and then moved into the workforce. We've chatted briefly a little bit about your early years as a junior doctor. Did you find them pretty tough? Were they, were they hard years to work through? Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, in the UK, I had been studying in uh, Leicester for five years and I became a junior doctor uh, very in a town very close to Leicester with a lot of my friends from university. So it was great fun, you know, like we were on the wards together, learning how to be doctors together. So it was sort of scary and fun all at the same time. Well, we, we spoke about a couple of the challenges that you enjoyed, you know, being young and 
maybe not as well supported by the hospital system. I'm wondering, did that ever kind of waver your passion for, for medicine or surgery at all? Or did you have kind of that light at the end of the tunnel that, that you knew you were working towards the whole time? Um, I think that's a tricky question. Um, there's definitely been times where um, it's been very difficult. Um, I think the, the UK system is different to the system in Australia. I think you are exceptionally lucky. Um, certainly my experience of working in Victoria in Australia is that generally um, interns and residents are very well supported. Um, the rosters are very well covered. You have sick cover. Um, you're paid uh, very well. Um, and there's sufficient time in the day for you to um, sort of explore other things, you know, like if you want to stay late to attend some surgeries, that's fine. If you want to um, leave on time to pursue your other interests, then you can also do that. So I think the system here is is excellent, yeah. Talking about supports, can you tell us about some of the other supports that, that you had at the time? Um, did you lean on kind of friends and, and family, um, things like that during your years as a junior doctor and then as a trainee? Yeah, I think um, as a junior doctor, my, my peers were probably the most important support. Um, again, the way the system is designed in the UK is that it, that support's probably not as good as it, as it could be. And definitely the network is much stronger um, here in Australia, yeah. So we've chatted a little bit about the elective you did in, in renal transplant and then uh, the opportunity that you took up over in Pittsburgh as well. Can you tell us about how those experiences and others that you had coalesced into giving you this, this passion for the liver and, and surgery of um, kind of the HPV system? Yeah, so um, the renal transplantation elective was really fantastic. Like I said, it opened my eyes to the benefits of a career um, in transplantation. You had um, the best of both worlds, really. Lots of amazing, interesting surgeries and um, some medicine too. Um, looking after patients in intensive care, make, paying attention to um, the physiology of the patient as well. And then going to um, Pittsburgh was, yeah, more to learn about the liver and liver transplantation because Pittsburgh is the home of liver transplantation. Um, and that was just amazing. Um, so I had to make it very clear when I was there that, you know, I'm not just here for fun. Like I, I made it clear to the fellow at the time, a guy called Pete Abrams, you know, look, I've come all this way. I've paid... Um, uh, student tuition fees for UPMC so that I can come to these surgeries so call me anytime day or night so you know make yourself available make sure you know the fellows and the registrars that are doing the work um, and he was amazing and the others were great they got me involved they taught me how to suture and I got to observe lots of liver transplants um, I was scrubbed in in I think a 16 and a half hour multivisceral transplant. We did a dual paediatric um, renal transplant, which was just incredible. I remember looking at um, the renal arteries on these two tiny kidneys, and it's very sad, you know, knowing where those organs have come from. 
but when you see how pristine and beautiful they are and you watch them be implanted into an adult whose life is going to be transformed, you know, that's, that's a really special journey to be a part of and um, that experience has always stayed with me. And, um, yeah, I was scrubbed um, with the fellow throughout that operation and um, he let me close the skin at the end as a medical student. And, you know, so those experiences are really very... They make a huge impression on you. Um, and I was, I was very lucky um, to have those experiences, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really good advice in terms of um, just showing that you're keen, showing that you're enthusiastic. It's a common thread that a lot of our guests have mentioned that, you know, when, when they're a, a registrar or consultant and have med students following them around, the best ones are always the ones kind of keen to get involved and keen to put their hand up. Um, and, you know, even if, um, you know, it's not, you know, it might be the first time you've done something, for example, just just show that you're keen. Is that something that you see now that you're teaching medical students as well? Yeah, and definitely. And I think you have to be prepared to um, be persistent too because I think the first week that I was in Pittsburgh, um, they did a couple of transplants and I didn't, I didn't get a phone call. So I sort of had to say to the fellow, look, you know, you really don't have to feel bad about calling me at 2 a.m. Like that's the reason why I'm here. So, you know, it's easy for surgeons to think, oh, here's another enthusiastic student. Um, but, you know, you need to make it obvious that you really mean what you say um, I think so that you do get the calls. Yeah, yeah. And I think for medical students, sometimes they think that, you know, they might not be the highest priority of the, the consultant or the registrar that they're following around. Um, but as you say, you know, if it's a, a busy transplant unit, obviously they're going to be extremely busy. So you have to just, I guess, not take that personally and, and just really make yourself known. Yeah, and, and you know, get involved. Um, be, you know, embed yourself into the team and you really reap the benefits that way. You know, by the time I had finished um, there, I they had made me feel extremely welcome and I did feel part of the team. And that feeling that you get is is something that really inspires you and drives you to keep going especially when you do have a bad day um or a bad experience um those are good things to fall back on yeah so tell us about kind of those seminal experiences taking them with you and then eventually ending up in australia uh, to do your training yeah so it wouldn't have come about if i hadn't gone to pittsburgh um because um i made a contact there um, so that when I sort of accidentally met my husband-to-be um, in Chamonix in France, snowboarding, um, I um, had someone to, to get coffee with him in Melbourne um, who was a surgeon and sort of helped me get a job here. Um, and the other opportunity that came about sort of serendipitously, again sort of just re-emphasising that if something comes your way, you should probably grab it, um, unless there's a good reason not to, um, was that um, during my time on the renal transplant unit in Leicester, um, I'd found out about the British Transplant Society annual meetings and I decided that even though I didn't have an abstract to present, I would go along to this meeting and sort of go to some talks and find out a bit more about transplant that way. And I ended up meeting a fellow who was working at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge 
and he said, why don't you come to one of our research meetings? Um, so for a while I was travelling in between night shifts in Leicester and Cambridge during the day to do a research project there, which ended up getting published um, in the American Journal of Transplantation. So again, you know, these experiences wouldn't have happened if I hadn't sort of just done a few weird and random things. <laughs> like snowboarding in Chamonix? <laughs> like snowboarding mm. in Chamonix, yeah. So I had to go on that holiday on my own. I had promised myself that once I was earning enough money to go snowboarding again that I would go to the snow again. So I found this chalet in Chamonix where you could go and stay on your own. Um, and one of the other solo travellers just happened to be... <laughs> This guy called Dean, who is now my husband. Yeah. That sounds like a very lucky meeting indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very strange. Yeah. Tell us a, a little bit um, now about, you, you mentioned that he's medical. Is that right? No. Oh, no. sorry. Yeah. Dean is, is non-medical. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, tell us a little bit about the balance um, that, that you guys have, obviously, with extremely busy lives now. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned your own parents um, looking after children, I believe. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, you've got Max at home now. How does that balance go with the busy lives that, that you lead? Yeah, so I, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought this concept up. I find this concept of balance quite um, patronising in a way. It's a question that I think always gets asked more to females than males. And I think essentially... Um, you know, what is balance? Well, it's whatever makes you happy and we're all different. Um, so, you know, I might think that my life is perfectly balanced, but someone else might look at my life and think, balance? Where's the balance in that? So I, I think the message is, you know, you you do you, you live your life. Um, and as long as you're happy and your family is happy, um, then the balance is right. Um, for Dean and I, I think that, you know, we have a relationship, we're a team um, that compromise is extremely important. The balance is always changing. You know, there are times where his career comes first, he needs to study, he needs to stay late. There are times when my career comes first, I need to study, um, I want to stay late to do a transplant or I want to spend some time at the weekend doing an organ retrieval. Um... And then obviously now we have our son, Max, and he is the priority now. Um, but yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, the experience you had, obviously still doing your training here in Australia in the last couple of years. Um, but then last year, doing that whilst pregnant, how, how did you, did you go with that? Was that an extra challenge? I think I was really lucky, actually. Um, my first trimester was spent um, in the hard lockdown, the, the first hard lockdown, and that worked out really well for me because I was feeling um, pretty unwell. Um, so I could um, stay at home and work on my PhD from home. Thankfully, um, all of my animal work was complete. So a lot of my experimental work has not been affected um, by COVID. And um, uh, yeah, I was... Yeah, being pregnant during that time was, was actually good, really, yeah. I, I want to ask a little bit about, um, you know, following on from that more general 
kind of support in medicine and in surgery for um, things like flexible training, maternity and paternity leave. Um, it seems like that's something that medicine is slowly getting better at. What's your experience of that and, and what do you think we can do better to uh, allow people to um, perhaps uh, live, live lives that allow them to um, pursue more than one thing, maybe surgery and having a family, for example, when that might not have been possible in the past? Hmm. Well, I, th- I think it's definitely possible, uh, firstly. Um, um, so I have quite maybe slightly unique views on this in that um, obviously I think we need to support women um, in, in many ways much more. But I try not to um, focus this debate solely on the female because I think sometimes that can be a little bit limiting um, and um, one way in which females have been able to um, further their careers in recent times and go back to work more um, in, mo- in modern times has been through um, the willingness of, of men to, to work part-time too. Um, and, and when you are in a, a binary relationship, that's often how people have, have, have found it can work, is that you can both work part-time, both pursue your careers simultaneously and support one another in a family that way. Um, So I think when you um, centre the debate too much around females, we can actually neglect um, the males out there that do want to go part-time in order to support their wives that are working and have careers or in order to pursue other interests or in order to um, spend more time with their family if they have one or all of the above or other reasons Um, and I think that's really important because I know men who have wanted to work part-time for a variety of reasons and just like um, females have have experienced discrimination and um, judgment they too have felt that Um, and the other thing to say is that um, when we center the debate sometimes too much on females I think um, it gets us to think of, of binary relationships only and we're in a world now where that's not always the case. Um, relationships don't always follow that pattern. Um, so the language that we're using, I think, um, maybe needs to change. We should talk more about parental leave rather than maternity leave or paternity leave and um, focus more on equal opportunities so that males and females um, both have the opportunity equally to go part-time, to reduce their hours, um, to spend time with family, to pursue other interests, um, because then that takes um, the pressure off being a female and standing out for that. Um, And it also supports um, the men out there, and there are men out there, I've met them, (laughs) that that want to to work less or um, not necessarily work less but you know work more efficiently or also spend time at home or yeah doing other things does that make sense it does yeah Yeah. absolutely and I really like your description of this if I can summarize it like this as it's really everyone's problem it's it's not just something for us to say well what 
do women have to do differently or what can we do differently for women everyone has a role to play in this um, men no less than than women or, or as you say any other um, identity that, that people have in terms of that specific role for men you spoke about men being willing to take time off for the women in their lives in order to support them for example doing surgical training what are some of the other specific things you think men can do to support women and advocate for women and help to bring about this change on the issue of gender equality um i think the things that men can do if you like for women are things that um, they can do um, to make the workplace more inclusive so it, the way i see it is that in order um, to, to have the, the most functional and the best surgical workforce we should be striving to have the surgical workforce fully represent the community that we're serving. Um, so ideally, in an, in an ideal utopia, the surgical workforce looks like the, com- the community, um, be it male, female, um, Caucasian, Asian, whatever that may be, heterosexual, homosexual, all of, you know, everything and all of those things. So you, you've mentioned along the way, George, some of the people that have helped you to get where you are today. I'm interested to hear you speak a little bit more about maybe some of the mentors, in particular maybe some of the inspiring women that have gone ahead of you that, that you've looked up to and maybe um, have yeah, inspired you to kind of get where you are today and to keep going. Yeah, so maybe this is an important message for female wannabe surgeons out there is that um, all of my surgeon mentors are male um, and all my male mentors have been r- extremely supportive of me. Um, so irregardless of my gender, um, they have um, supported me and seen something in me that um, that hopefully they value. Um, that said, um, I'd be lying if I if I didn't admit to you that you know, sometimes I, I have felt like I needed to talk things through with a female. And so in recent years, I have made an effort to make contact with a professor of medicine who's a female. Um, so there are no professors of surgery that I know that are female. Um, so I had to think outside the box. And I think this is a really important message because I didn't really think about this either. Um, before I met this lady, I always sort of thought, I want to be a surgeon, so I must have surgeon mentors. But actually, I've realised through spending some time with this lady that um, even though she's a physician, I can still learn many, many things from her and get amazing advice from her on all sorts of matters um, because she's had to... um, um, you know, carve a career out in a male-dominated field. Um, still, she's had children. Um, she's had a family. She's felt those pressures. She also has a, a huge research um, burden as well and writes many, many grants and feels the pressure from that too. So I think um, don't be afraid to seek advice from 
people outside of the specialty that you're interested in. That is actually really important. That's the way in research that we build collaborations. And it's also important in your career anyway because it will, will open your eyes to perspectives that you wouldn't have obtained otherwise. Yeah, I really like that. And, you know, although we're a surgical podcast, passionate about surgeons and surgery, um, I think that's a really good thing to remember that your mentors don't have to be something or someone that you aspire exactly to be like. They, they can be left slightly left field um, or someone in a slightly different area um, and you can learn just as much. So I really like that advice. You're now uh, just finishing off, I believe, your PhD at the Doherty Institute where we are today. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that involves and, and how that work has been in the last few years. Yeah, so my PhD um, has really evolved and I think that's true of any PhD. Um, so it's ended up being a, a joint venture between the Doherty um, and um, the Austin. So it centres on tumour occurrence in the regenerating liver. So as HPB surgeons, we frequently resect primary and secondary liver cancer, but unfortunately um, a lot of those patients do develop intrahepatic recurrence following resection. Um, and so my PhD is trying to understand how um, liver regeneration following liver resection um, can actually um, drive that tumour recurrence and how we can perhaps um, negate that in the future with certain drugs. And we've teamed up with um, Professor Elizabeth Vincan, who's become an excellent mentor of mine as well. She's not a surgeon, she's a pure scientist. Um, and um, her specialty is the WINT signalling pathway. But anyway, we've teamed up with her as a result of her expertise in growing human organoids. And um, her and her postdoc, Bang, have successfully taught me how to um, establish human patient-derived organoid cultures of colorectal liver metastases. And we've been able to use that model to translate some of my mouse work that I did earlier on in my PhD at the Austin. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit more about kind of the, the nuts and bolts of um, not only your PhD, but just doing a PhD in general. I think sometimes um, students and junior doctors think of things like, you know, the extremely flexible timelines or applying for grants. It all seems a little bit scary. Tell us how that experience was for you. Um, I think um, doing a PhD has definitely been the hardest thing um, I've probably ever done. Um, it's a real test of stamina, endurance, and persistence um, more than anything. Um, th things go wrong, and I saw an amazing thing on Twitter a while ago about the um, iceberg success, or the success iceberg, sorry, whereby you only really see the top of the iceberg is the successful person. You don't appreciate all the things that have gone wrong. And I can tell you that, you know, throughout the course of any PhD, experiments go wrong. You have to change your approach multiple times. Um, you have to think outside the box. You need to build collaborations in order to um, keep going and survive. And, um, yeah, so many, many challenges. But, look, we're here. Um, we're about to to finish and submit so I'm very excited yeah well that that is really exciting tell us a little bit about you mentioned that the challenges and the thinking that's 
probably slightly different in research than it is in an operating theatre. How do you think, uh, apart from obviously the findings itself, how do you think the experience of research and the PhD uh, will kind of inform the way that you practice clinical medicine in the future? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, For me personally, I probably went about it slightly differently. Most um, surgical PhDs are quite clinical. I actually really wanted to get into the lab and understand how labs work because um, I think that's actually really important that some surgeons do that so that they appreciate um, the time that things take, um, the level of love and nurture that you have to put into things. So, you know, I have to care for my organoids almost as much as I have to care for some of my patients. Um, You know, they take a lot of looking after and I think sometimes um, as an outsider you can have perceptions of things that go on in the lab and you can sort of think that things might be easy um, or quick um, when actually that's quite far from the truth. Um, So I've now got a much deeper appreciation of how the lab works. I've learned lots of lab skills, cell culture, how to grow organoids, lots of flow cytometry, um, lots of analysis skills, um, which um, won't necessarily make me a better technical surgeon, but I think it's going to really inform how I do research in the future um, and, and how and who I collaborate with in order to get the funding um, that we need as surgeons to really um, produce impactful research that can genuinely improve um clinical practice yeah yeah that's really interesting to hear and listening to that i can understand the benefit of some of those um, more senior doctors and surgeons who we see take up that clinician researcher pathway that both arms can inform one another uh, and really provide benefit to one another yeah you definitely need a few people in the team that can be that bridge that bridge between the clinical side and the the science side. I think when you have scientists working on their own, it's easy for them to get blindsided by a few small particular things. But when you come together um, with a surgeon or a physician, you can often hone the question, make it much more clinically relevant. And together as a team, um, you then start to work towards answering questions that are going to really improve patients' lives. So it's important from both sides. Yeah, and I guess that's something most surgeons will end up doing for the rest of their career in terms of working in a team and collaborating with other people. So it can only be beneficial, I'm guessing. Um, We've spoken a lot about some of your achievements, George, and uh, already at this stage of your career, you know, you've you've achieved a lot. You've you've done a lot of different things. Um, I want to chat about something... Uh, that you and I were, were chatting about off air before we started, which is imposter syndrome. Um, and it's something I think almost every medical student will experience at some point in, in their, their life and their career. And I think it, maybe it's really easy to be, to be swept up in the belief that, oh, I, I'm not sure I belong here and everyone else seems like they're achieving so much more than me. Um, I firstly want to say that I'm extremely impressed by everything you, you've done and, and um, you've shared a lot of great stories so far, but I'm interested to hear whether your experience of, of that has 
um, been something you've become more aware of and, and maybe something that, you know, you've had to work out recognizing that it, that it is a thing and um, maybe just working through it through your career? Yeah, I think for me, imposter syndrome uh, is, is definitely a thing. Um, it, it can be really hard to um, feel like you belong, I, I think, um, especially when you're a short female um, who looks a lot younger than she is and has a high squeaky voice. Um, but look, I have found... Um, that despite those things, um, like I said at the beginning, really, you know, I've sort of stuck my, by my principles of, you know, keep your head down, work hard, and and eventually the work will speak for itself. Um, and I hope that that's not bad advice, but ultimately, uh, in my experience, I've been extremely well supported by people who can see that actually I am perfectly capable of the job. Um, and the only way that they've come to see that and that I've come to see that is is by just doing it, just getting on with it. Um, and I, I think um, that's really what it boils down to is uh, it is a lot of hard work. Um, there can be a lot of challenges. There has been, well, there have been failures along the way, but um, you know, you just just keep going, and um, it it will pay off. It it will, um, yeah. So, George, we've chatted a lot about the different pursuits um, that that you're engaged in at the moment. Tell us a little bit about what the next couple of years might look like. What does the future hold? Yeah, so in uh, May I have my completion seminar and then I will submit my thesis in July, return to training in August and then the plan will be to complete um, probably a three-year fellowship in HPB and liver transplantation. Um, yeah. And does that say you go back to the UK or are you staying with us in Australia? I think the plan will be to do a bit of both, a couple of years here and at least one year probably in the UK. Um, it's looking like it will probably be Birmingham or Cambridge, hope, or, yeah, depending on where my interests lie at the time. Um, but yeah, exciting th things to come. Um, maybe another baby. Who knows? We'll have to see how things pan out. But yeah. Well, well, we'll definitely be following keenly. George, thanks so much for sharing your stories today. Um, I've no doubt that you will be and are a great mo role model for all of our listeners, the, the pre-meds and the medical students and all of the junior doctors as well who listen to our program. I'd love to hear from you one parting piece of advice that you might have for, for those listeners uh, and maybe one lesson that you've learnt along your way that, that's really stuck with you um, that you can pass on today. Yes, yeah, so it would definitely be if an opportunity arises and you're not sure, just go for it. Take the leap of faith because you do not know where it will lead and how it will potentially assist you further on down the track. Like, y you cannot predict the people that you're going to make, meet, the contacts that you're going to make. 
um, and those contacts are invariably invaluable. Um, that's certainly how it's panned out for me. That's great advice and fantastic words to finish on. Thanks so much for your time today, George. We'll follow you keenly in the future. Thank you so much. This episode of The Time Out was brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. Don't forget to subscribe to The Time Out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know on Facebook or Twitter if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show at TTO Podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.